1: When terror reigns from the sky, when the earth orbits into a nightmare, when the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates, the whole population is driven by fear towards insanity, the day of the trepids, when destruction closes in from every side. Did you ever imagine that a plant could devour such large
2: creatures?
1: Starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't
2: stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain.
0: How can you know it's any better?
2: I don't, I don't, I don't.
0: To me, it's something that is intelligent is just any kind of organism that can perform the task of living. So, you know, collecting information, uh, storing information in a way that it can be reused.
1: How do you know that you are a higher order of being
0: than a potato table? Plants can do that, and can probably even pass your third grade math test. The fact that a plant can perform certain tasks and do things like associative learning, just like a dog would, it's really confronting the human in us
1: doesn't seem to have any central nervous system
0: then how does it move
1: all plants move they don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you the day of the trip when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of
0: terror terror
1: Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr Michael Brooks.
2: Hello. Very chirpy hello, Michael. I'm excited. Why are you excited? I think this is going to be a good one.
1: I th- I think it's going to be a really good one. The format of Science-ish, of course, is that we ask one question of a work of fiction to one scientist and then we have a conversation about it. And this week, it's my turn to lead... And that's why Michael's
2: excited. <laughs> because he, well, I'm not because, sure because that's he knows why. That. No, it's because you know how excited I get when it's my turn. The challenge of trying to get a word in edgeways is, is what's really <laughs> exciting me.
1: So we're going to be discussing one of my favourites, actually, plants, and even better than that, clever plants, because we're exploring the
2: science of the day of the triffits. Have you read it? Yeah, oh, years and years and years ago at school, I think it was. But it sort of stays with you, doesn't it? That kind of, just the idea, the basic idea of like mad carnivorous <laughs> plants ra- yeah. ranging over Britain. And and yeah, it's it's a terrifying thought. It's a
1: brilliant book. It was my favourite book when I was about 12. So there's this guy, Bill Mason, and he is a trifidologist. So he's working with these plants that are carnivorous and can walk around and he has an accident with with a triffid that means he's in hospital and has his eyes bandaged. He wakes up, and while he's been bandaged up, there has been a sort of meteor shower, of like green light, that has blinded everyone. So he sort of wanders out into a kind of apocalyptic scenario. I guess this is written early 50s. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of stuff where (laughs) there's sort of Slight blamey of the Russians, maybe? Of course, yeah. The Russians are are sort of involved with the Triffids being created. Some things never change, do they? But that's really the big instant: is everyone is blind, and then what happens to society? And then a sort of added layer is you've got the Triffids having an absolute field day. So I think obviously when you read the book, you do start wondering about whether plants could ever take over. And obviously we're sitting quite happily at the apex of evolution. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I know that's slightly, you know, that's contentious, but whatever. There are you, bacteria you that, that might question that, but, yeah. you know. I, I think there are plants that might question and we going to come on to that. Okay. <laughs> but could plants take over? And I think that, related to that, assuming that we haven't all been blinded, then plants would need a certain amount of intelligence in order to do so. Because we're going to see them coming. So, yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, basically. Very, very slowly. <laughs> Urgent warning. All of England appears to be infected with a strange new plant that can
0: inflict a fatal sting. It is also rumoured that this plant can uproot itself and move about. If you are blind, stay indoors. If you can
1: see, keep a constant lookout. We will return to the air with further bulletins. Stay tuned to this wavelength. So our question in this episode is going to be, How smart are plants?
2: Okay, and who did we get to blow this question wide open? We've done very well, actually. We've got
1: uh, Monica Gagliano, who is Associate Professor in Evolutionary Ecology at the University of Western Australia. This driver possesses the finest of all thinking organisms, the human brain a pulpy mass of cells and fibers.
0: For some strange bias, we are so concerned about the brain and the neural system as the prerequisite to be able to perform pretty much any cognitive process. And
1: in man, in the conscious state, much behavior is based on learning. The functioning of the cerebrum enables a child to learn to walk.
0: Including, of course, intelligent behavior. Some people just say, like, no brain, no gain. And that's the end of the conversation. To me, something that is intelligent is just any kind of organism that can perform the task of living. So, you know, collecting information, uh, storing information in a way that it can be reused. And in a way that it becomes really adaptive and it allows for survival, it allows for thriving in your environment. The same activity, the same behavior can be reached and accomplished in very different ways. And so plants are a particular case that uh, are showing us in which other ways life has discovered itself in a way that it doesn't require a brain.
1: How do you know that you are a higher order of being than a potato. What do you know about potatoes anyway? You've never studied potatoes, not really. You ever thought how a potato feels? Or say, it doesn't feel, it's only a potato, it's got nothing to feel with. Wait a minute. When you put an electroencephalographic instrument on a potato or a lie detector, it sure registers on it. And uh, it, it will change. When you do certain things, if you prick the potato, the thing will go yon yon
0: it's easy to understand why the denial, most plants don't appear to do anything. Observing the behaviours, noticing them in the first place, has been pretty much impossible for a long time. Unless you are really patient. <laughs> and so um, often they have been regarded as like, oh, they're just not behaving at all. So if something is not behaving at all surely you don't even have to pose the question of whether they're cognitive they're intelligent and and even further like you know whether they're conscious and aware and all of that.
1: We've definitely discussed whether there is a good definition of intelligence before. Yes. And the truth is but there isn't really a consensus on it. But one of the biggest problems that I think that this area of plant science has had is that there was a book in the early 70s called The Secret Life of Plants that was the one that kind of said, you know what, plants, they love classical music. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're, very, they're very emotional. Yeah. Um, there was a stuff about them being telepathic. So that, and that, that will have
2: got scientists sort of like, right, we're definitely not going to discuss this at all. This is not people, happening.
1: Yeah, it's all been pretty much debunked and it's kind of cast a shadow yeah. over this area of research. In the 2000s, a certain group of biologists started talking about plant neurobiology and this really got to some other <laughs> scientists because like, you cannot call it neurobiology because, a bit of a spoiler alert, plants don't have neurons. Plants don't have brains, I'm afraid, <laughs> if no that's what shit. you were hoping for. <laughs> yeah. Which is is a fair point, but what they're really talking about is, is there anything homologous about the way that plants are working to the way that
2: yeah. um, you know, no, neurobiology
1: works? Well, you're more accepting than a lot of the science community. They were saying things like, it's wild speculation, this is all foolish distraction, and my favourite, someone said, this is the last confrontation between the scientific community and the nut house. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Which is damn stuff oh that is harsh isn't it Mm.
1: yeah did it ever come to like a fist fight i don't know if there was ever a fist fight i think that just weight of numbers would have meant that the sort of anti plant neurobiology people would have won Yeah. because it's quite a small group the guy called uh, stefano mancuso right who was one of the main people and i think there was only like six of them at the start
2: so if plants don't have brains or neurons how does their intelligence work? If you look at, um, I'm
1: going to go with ants. They're not or a, Yeah, just relax. Um, <laughs> if you look at ants and you look at their behaviour as a group, where you have lots of individuals acting together with kind of quite simple rules, yeah, producing intelligent behaviour, as distributed intelligence Yeah. what you call okay. it. But if you took an individual ant, you would say, I don't think that that is an intelligent creature. Is that fair? Mm, all right, yeah, I'm going to go with it. So Mancuso thinks that something similar might be happening with the roots of plants. So near the tip of the root, there's a kind of transition zone, where there's quite a lot of activity, so sort of oxygen and electrical activity. And he thinks that all of these little root tips or areas near the root tips might be very basic structures, but together are forming a kind of greater distributed intelligence
2: well so that would be like saying you know each root tip is like an individual neuron effectively or an analog of and and they they work together
1: right so it's not that dissimilar yeah in fairness because you can't it's not like you look at the brain and go well there is a specific smart control bit there it's all just neurons working together but individually none of them are clever are they no also something else for us to get our brain-centric heads around having a brain for a plant that can't move would be a disadvantage. How so? Because it's an irreplaceable organ. You really don't want to have a central control that can get destroyed yeah. or eaten. In fact, they're designed to be eaten. Like that's part of their evolutionary strategy. Yeah, they can lose ninety percent of their of their body and survive, which is a, is a kind of an amazing feature.
0: Why do they keep coming back?
1: Uh, I don't know, Susan.
2: And there must be some reason. Maybe they can hear us.
1: Hmm? Hey, maybe that's it. Maybe it's sound that attracts them.
0: That generator. Come on, Susan.
2: All right, so convince me by telling me the amazing things they do. So, can, well, i just ask you a question can plants hear? Well, I would say no. You'd be wrong. And they'll
1: be very disappointed to hear you say that. (laughs) They have these mechanoreceptors protein in all of their cells that respond to certain deformation that would be caused by sound waves. So there was a a good experiment where it had been shown that if a plant is played the sound of a munching caterpillar, they then respond in an appropriate way. So there's various different mechanisms. They might produce a toxin. They might just produce something that means the texture of the leaf changes. It becomes less digestible. Another really nice one is there's a plant where if it's getting eaten, so it's actually getting eaten by a caterpillar, it releases a chemical that, alerts something called a parasitic wasp. And so it effectively calls in the cavalry. Holy shit. So it, it says, guys, we've got a problem over here. The caterpillar's on us. And the parasitic wasps are like, got the signal, loud and clear. <laughs> and they come in and then they, they attack the caterpillar. It's like a bat phone. Yeah. So you can show that when a plant is emitting a volatile chemical because there's a threat of attack or, or disease or whatever, it's communicating to its leaves, but also other neighboring plants of the same variety effectively listen in. So they're kind of eavesdropping. Leaves dropping. Exactly my point. No one has called it leaves dropping. <laughs> I just couldn't. I, I, I read, I, I even Googled leaves dropping. So, like, how is no one calling this leaves dropping? And are you
2: going to say that that's not smart? That is smart behaviour. I'm not going to say that's not smart, but let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Do they just respond to these things, or is there any learning involved? Because that's a really good measure of intelligence.
1: You know what? It's not often I get to say this, but it's an excellent point, Brooksy. Thank you. Can plants learn? And Professor Monica actually tried to answer that in the lab. Oh.
0: The first step to enter this kind of question was to take, I guess, what we would define as the most basic level of learning. And this is uh, non-associative learning. The technical term is habituation. And if you take the example of an animal like ourselves, we habituate to things all the time. And what the habituation allows us to do is to ignore anything that is in your environment that is irrelevant. If you take the same example and you look into the plant realm, then the question is exactly the same. And that's what I posed as a question for my experiment with the Mimosa pudica, which is also known as the sensitive plants. And one of the typical behavior of this plant, and that's why I guess she's uh, she's famous, <laughs> is that uh, when it's disturbed, the plant closes its leaves. And it does it really rapidly so you can see it. And the idea was, okay, so can a plant, in this case Mimosa, learn to ignore something that is innocuous, it's irrelevant, something that the plants could never have experienced in her history. And I'm talking about the evolutionary history. So in the case of the mimosa, uh, what I did, um, I dropped them. (laughs) This is a control drop. And the idea was, let's see if the plants can learn that this disturbance being dropped you know, it might be annoying, but it doesn't actually have any consequences for survival. The mimosa, correctly so, rightly so, closes its leaves immediately when you drop it the first time. And then you drop it again, and the leaves stay closed, and then again, and then again, and that's when the mimosa leaves start reopening. So uh, the mimosa experienced 60 drops in, in a series, and then he had a pause, and then he would experience another 60 drops. But by the time that I get to the fourth or sixth time, the mimosa has already worked out. There is no threat. So the plants reopening its leaves is telling us already there's like, look, I can't afford to waste my energy doing something that is totally useless. I'm gonna keep feeding and until this drop stops. And I left them for Well, initially for a week and I went back and tested them and they knew exactly what was going on as if I just did it. So I was like, oh no, they remember. (laughs) So then I left them for a month. And this is where I think the, I guess the power of this experiment really uh, revealed the plants in their full glory. (laughs) Because after a month, they all remembered, oh, the drop. Oh yeah, we know this and it's not important so I'm not going to bother closing my leaves. But just that in itself, to me, shows how much more complex the entire story is and how much more there is in plants than we have dared acknowledging.
2: Compelling stuff, isn't this? It's an amazing thing, yeah.
1: They learn. This is the thing, they they are habituated. And when she presented her findings, (laughs) a lot of people, again, went mental. And she had her paper about this rejected by 10 journals. (laughs) And the reason that they rejected it is because she insisted on using the word learning. um, And things like intelligence and stuff. And they're like, we have no problem with what you are showing. We just don't like the language you're using. So,
2: yeah, so it's just about the inference that she's drawing Mm. from these results. So, yeah, the thing is that Professor Monica
1: was pleased with her habituation stuff but wanted to take it on to the next level. And so she decided to try and test whether you could see associative learning. She did it, and this time her paper went straight into Nature. Oh, right. So, very nice stuff. Oh, that is good. Um, I mean, this is crazy. This is sort of Pavlov's dog, but for Pavlov's, you know, Petunias. Oh, Nice. What she did is she did an experiment with pea plants. And so you get a pea plant and then you, you put uh, what what I find amusingly described as a as a Y maze. And a Y maze is a rubbish maze because it's just like left or right. Oh, Which okay. way do you want to go? And then you have light and a fan. So some sort of wind as your stimulate. And you put light and wind both on the left and then you let the plants have experienced that and then you put the fan on the other side and the pea plants start growing towards that because they have associated the light which they want with the wind the results it's 62 percent grow towards the wind when it's associated with the light like it's
2: fairly close to fifty-fifty. I mean, it's, it's statistically significant. Do you think there's, like, levels of intelligence amongst some of the plants? It's like... Well, even amongst the pea plants. Some of the dumb ones. I mean, there's some absolute morons. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh, where is it?
1: <laughs> I'll go anyway. Um, so people are now doing work, but they're trying to train certain crops, so, like, peanut plants, to withstand drought. How? So they'll do it in... I mean, in exactly the way you'd expect... You just reduce the amount of water it has in its early life, so that it's more ready subsequently in a drought
0: to oh, okay. to cope right. with it,
1: and that would obviously be a pretty significant thing to do in terms of agriculture.
2: Does that work?
1: I think they've had some successes. Yeah. So you
2: sort of deprive it of water yeah. when it's really young. Yeah. And then it doesn't grow more, up so thirsty.
1: It's yeah, effectively more able to withstand. Yeah, a lack of water in. See, in I'm later not sure life. I'd
2: really call that training or intelligence. Mm, I'd call that no. maybe epigenetic. You know, kind yeah. of yeah, changing the environment, and you might change the way genes are expressed in the future. You know, I think that's a big leap to say that sort of you've you've trained it to respond to drought. It's not like you can train a human child to respond to drought by depriving it of water early in its life, is it?
1: Or can you? It's the kind of thing. I imagine you think we I'd be should do so on that. Yeah, Isn't that classic that?
2: Um, <laughs> island full of babies stuff? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yet another one for the, <laughs> for the island.
1: The original triffid, the kind I saw in a greenhouse several years ago, was known to have come to earth in a meteorite. This reappearance must have been caused by the meteorite explosion of the other night. Why should they attack people? Most plants thrive on animal waste, but I'm afraid this mutation possesses an appetite for the animal itself. This must be how they propagate. There yeah, are millions of them. One light wind and they're everywhere. Well, here's a question for you. Why do you think we are happier,
2: seemingly, to ascribe intelligence to a computer, so artificial intelligence, than we are to a plant? Because it mimics our intelligence, doesn't it? We have this sense of processing information in a central console. That doesn't mean that it's any more or less intelligent than a plant. It just means it's totally different. So what you're saying is nature can find different ways of exhibiting intelligence. On their own terms, plants are amazing. Yeah. Plants eat light. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, no, I, I get that.
1: I get that. It's really cool.
2: Yeah. Um, like, you could think of them as aliens, can't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely.
1: They, they are. They're like it's weird aliens who've evolved a different way of doing things. And actually, there's, there's a sort of episode of Star Trek where an alien race who live in a massively sped up dimension of time like arrive on Earth.
0: Your crew cannot see you or any of us because of the acceleration. We move in the wink of an eye.
1: To them, we appear to be absolutely inert. Like, we just don't, we appear not to be moving at all. So they then horribly exploit us.
0: (laughs) In a few of their moments, they will realise that you vanished. They will look for you. They will not find you. You're accelerated far beyond their power to see. So they'll go on without you.
1: That's one way of looking That's at what we do to plants. and awesome plants. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I get that. Because if you look at, yeah, you look at time-lapse, you can watch plants behaving. That's the thing, like, as Professor Monica said, there's a temptation to write plants off because you look at them and they go, well, they're just, they're not doing anything. But they are doing stuff just really, really slowly. Yeah. So don't don't write them off. Okay,
2: all right. Is it a plant or an animal? Who knows? It
1: doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. No circulation.
2: Then how does it move?
1: All plants move. They don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. We could find out how this thing functions. We might figure out an easier way of killing it.
0: This kind of science in itself speaks more about the human than the plants. The fact that a plant can perform certain tasks and do things like associative learning, just like a dog would, it's really confronting the human in us. Because, of course, it's suggesting that the way in which we learn and animals with, you know, brain and neural system learn or do things, or the way in which we consider ourselves as cognitive beings might need to be revised. New ideas and new areas of exploration find a really hard time at the beginning. And then as more and more scientists dare to look into that box, it becomes mainstream. And then there is a flood of a lot of research done around those same questions.
2: It's not that I expected a miracle. I didn't think we'd find a magic bullet, but nothing, absolutely nothing seems to affect this tissue. They live, they grow, they take nourishment. They have sensory response, Absorb and expend
1: energy? No matter what they're made of, there must be something that will interrupt their life cycle. Well, fundamentally, it's a simple problem, like finding
0: a weed killer, The plants have already taken over the world. We are totally dependent on them, relying on them. And if they really wanted to take over as the trifids, they could have done it anytime. They can do it anytime, even now. But I don't think that's the real nature of plants. If anything, they've been supporting us for such a long time and they keep doing it regardless of what we do to them. The only thing that we haven't realized or we've forgotten is that, uh, yeah, without them, we're going to have an impossible time on the planet.
1: So Professor Monica is saying that actually plants are already an alien. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a question of could plants rule the world? She's saying that they do. And you look at the stats, 99% of the biomass on earth is plant.
2: they're doing okay aren't they they are doing okay yeah i'm not i'm still not convinced that they're in control of the whole situation are you really saying that they're controlling us rather than us controlling them
1: well obviously it depends on your perspective but if you look at wheat say yeah and this is very nicely argued in more detail in sapiens the book uh, that wheat domesticated us and if you think about what, what's the best outcome for any living thing There to be loads of you. Yeah. Loads of your genetic material out out there and and reproducing and so on. And so, 10,000 BC or 20,000 BC, wheat is just in the pack. It's just one of like a load of wild grasses. It's only really in the Middle East. It's just sort of jostling for position. Yeah. And you look at it now and it covers an enormous area, like it's absolutely dominant. And so you could look at it and say wheat has used us to attain a very strong position within uh, God damn that wheat. Yeah, because and then you look at what's happened to so before we started farming wheat, we were hunter gatherers, we were nomadic, we we're having a great time, yeah, we're just yeah. like foraging, um, climbing
2: up paleo, trees, eating yeah, paleo
1: very much eating paleo in great shape. Yeah. And then you start farming. And you start having to look after wheat and you've start having to like plow and like hoe the ground and water it and you start getting bad backs and you're hunched over (laughs) and you're having to weed to look after the the wheat. Like you're basically enslaved to wheat. Wow. And 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 then once you've become enslaved, you can't then escape because you become dependent on it. Yeah. The wheat has it's owned us.
2: Oh my God. And we let ourselves we've just been hoodwinked. We're subservient
1: to our wheat overlords. It's okay.
2: So we're going gluten free from now on, but not enough of us are going to go gluten free. The wheat is still smiling. So the moral of the story is that we actually need to tread pretty carefully. We are fooling ourselves if we think we're totally in control, in charge of the plants, and they have no say in what's going on. Mm -hmm. So as regards to our question, how smart are plants? They're quite smart, I think. I'm starting to
1: quite smart. I I think you have to say plants are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. You, you, all right. you look at a plant and if, you think, that is, that is not a clever you know what? thing.
2: That plant in the corner of the studio there, I don't see that as particularly clever. That's not... Yeah, what's have it you achieving? not listened to any of
1: this? It is! Just because it's not waving around like like a show-off like you. <laughs>
2: it's doing lots of stuff. It's just sitting quietly in the corner being doing clever. doing stuff.
1: Plants are doing everything. They're fighting for territory. They're trying to evade predators. They're trying to get food. They're doing all the stuff that we're doing.
2: So you really think plants are really very smart? I don't say I think they're very smart.
1: I think that plants are... If I had to draw an equivalence, I'd say a plant was as clever as a termite. <laughs> <laughs> Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and El Scott, sound designed by Ivor Slayer Manley. The executive producer was Harry Watson. Special thanks to Professor Monica Gagliano. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, please do. We're on Twitter at science underscore ish or at radio underscore wolfgang, also on Instagram. And we've got a website, scienceish.org. How many types of photoreceptor have you got in your eye?
2: Yeah, go on. I've no
1: idea. You've got four. Four. You piece of shit.
2: <laughs> what? Have How many have got? plants
1: got? Um, Eleven.
2: Eleven. Eleven. Good old plants. I like that.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: I loved it.